Morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it's a privilege and delight to read your word, to pray, to fellowship together, to sing your praises, and now to hear your word preached. We have worshipped you, and now we continue to worship you. We pray that as we, as we open your word, as we read it, as we hear it preached, that that we would regard these next few minutes as an act of worship and that you would receive it as such. And just as we have needed your help to worship rightly in these last few minutes, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to worship rightly going forward, that we might understand your word rightly and well, that we would apply it to your glory and for our good, And that our hearts would swell with affection and devotion to you again in worship. We pray for your help. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Last week we began this chapter and we covered verses 1 through through 13 this morning we're we're continuing in verse 14 and we'll we will cover 14 through 23 to remind ourselves of the context and what has brought about this conversation that Jesus is having with a handful of the disciples we'll begin just by reading the first four verses so as you're finding your place there please stand with me and we will begin just by reading those first four verses keeping in mind that As we proceed, we'll be covering verses 14 through 23. So, Mark 13, verses 1 through 4. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You may be seated. The Scriptures repeatedly call us to be faithful Christians, imaging and proclaiming Christ, and we find ourselves challenged to do that now in the midst of increasingly difficult days. We are looking at the collapse of moral values, especially in our culture, the things that you could count on being considered wrong broadly in our culture, those things are up in the air now. We're looking at the collapse of our economy. If only as we look at the gas prices rising, 
Others of us who are saving for retirement are, are seeing that retirement being eaten away by inflation. Even the, the church, as we, as we look at our mission to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, it's becoming more and more unpopular to live as conspicuously faithful believers. Even using the name of Jesus Christ in, in, a, in a public workplace can, give you, can get you the side eye. Within the evangelical church, there is much infighting going on about what is the appropriate way to, to be faithful to the Lord. And there is in the hearts of many believing people, professing believers, at least a sense of nervousness over all of these things. In the hearts of some, a growing sense of desperation. And in all of it, we can always count on that siren song of the enemy offering to us false hopes in the form of political answers, economic answers, or perhaps even just simple escape through vice. And we find ourselves, of course, then tempted to latch on to these false refuges, false Christs. So, what to do? It's a magnificent thing that the Word of God is always pertinent to our lives. And as it so often does through instruction and events that happened long ago, it speaks to us right where we are. And through this section that we look at this morning regarding the destruction of the temple, we're shown that as judgment approaches, we must beware of false hopes and we must persevere in faith in Christ. We must beware of false hopes and we must persevere in faith in Christ. I remember that chapter 13 comes to us in the context of rising tension between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders. All of this is heading toward Jesus' crucifixion and the Jewish leaders' judgment. We considered last week the, the, the context which indicates that the bulk of this passage in chapter 13 refers to events surrounding the destruction of the temple which took place in 70 AD. As we've just read, one of the disciples points out to the Lord the magnificence of the temple. And then Jesus directs, directly predicts the destruction of that temple. He and the disciples then sit down at the Mount of Olives Facing the temple, and four of the disciples then ask, When will these things be? The most obvious reference to these things is what Jesus has just predicted the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 14 through 23, many of us have only ever heard these things referred to as events future to us. But these verses go together with verses 5 through 13 that we looked at last week. If you missed the message last week, of course, you can find that on our website. Now this whole section, verses 5 through 23, it goes together. And one reason that we know that is that it's structured as a chiasm. We've talked about chiasms in the past. A chiasm is a rhetorical device in which the first section mirrors the last section. And the second section mirrors the second to last section. 
And the third section mirrors the third to last section and so on. And eventually you get to the middle. And typically the middle is, is a very important part. And that's kind of what we have here in, in verses 5 through 23 of Mark chapter 13. I want to give you the sections of this chiasm just so that you can look at them in your own time and you can see how these things mirror one another. So the first section of this chiasm we looked at last week and it's verses 5 and 6. You can glance down at it in your Bible if you'd like, verses 5 and 6, where Jesus warned about deceivers claiming to be Jesus. Now that section mirrors verses 21 through 23. You can glance down there and, and see that there are deceivers claiming to be Jesus. Those, those sections mirror one another. So the first section and the last section mirror one another. Then the second section that we looked at also last week is verses 7 and 8, which talk about the fact that there are going to be, there's going to be fighting and natural disasters in various places. That section mirrors verses 14 through 20, the second to last section. The second section mirrors the second to last section. The second to last section being verses 14 through 20, where the Lord talks about fighting and tribulation in Judea. The central section, which we looked at last week, the very middle, was persecution of believers, which would, in, which would indicate to us that the most important part of this whole section is what we covered last week, which is that there's going to be persecution on the church, and that this is not a sign to flee Jerusalem, but that the, the believers there need to hunker down and continue to be faithful to that gospel work. I, I point all of that out to you just to, to show you that this section actually goes together It is all about events preceding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But just like anything that the Bible talks about, as past events relative to us, it has great import for us today. And we don't want to snooze through this. Now, verse 24, through the end of the chapter, which Lord willing we will look at next time, pertains to the second coming of Christ. Now, last time, you'll remember verses 5 through 13, The Lord was warning the disciples about some non-signs. Remember, they're asking, Lord, when will these things be? And and what is the sign that these things are about to be fulfilled? Well, Jesus, first of all, says, well, here are some non-signs. These are the things that are going to happen. They're just supposed to happen. And they are not an indication that the temple is about to be destroyed. That's what we saw last week. Now in verse 14 and following through 23, He moves on to give the sign. Here is the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. Look at verse 14 with me. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now there's something in that verse that is unique in all of the book of Mark. It should stand out to us. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie. Have you ever been watching a movie or a TV show and one of the characters looks directly at the camera and addresses you as the audience? It's like you're not supposed to do that. You're breaking character. It's kind of, there's something like that in this verse. It's that parenthetical imperative. Let the reader understand. That's not Jesus talking to the disciples. That's Mark talking to us. And what he's saying is, Hey, wake up. Though you're not in Jerusalem, this has pertinence for you. 
Though you may be outside Jerusalem, and, and this is not a threat to you at all, or maybe you're, you're, you're reading this after these events take place, this has pertinence to you. And so it's significance for us. There is turmoil around us, all around us right now, as we're waiting for the final judgment. How should we conduct ourselves? Our first point this morning is then going to be just that. Let the reader understand. And by that we just mean, let us keep in mind that though these events are past tense to us, there is pertinence for our lives as disciples. So the first thing that we're going to do this morning is walk through verses 14 through 20. 14 through 20, thinking through what these verses mean and how they're fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. We'll then think through how those verses are helpful to us. But then, beginning in verse 21, we'll see that the real danger for the disciples, in Jesus' mind, is how all of this turmoil surrounding the destruction of the temple is is going to result in a danger of spiritual deception. And that's also going to be the real payoff for us. There's great danger of spiritual deception in the midst of the turmoil of the church age. Let the reader understand. Now again, Jesus says, when you see the, the, the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, it's time to get out of Dodge or, or Jerusalem, as it were. That's when it's time to make trails for the hills. The abomination of desolation, whatever that is, and we'll talk about it in a section, that's the sign that it's time to flee. That is what the disciples were looking for. They wanted the sign Jesus just gave it to them. The abomination of desolation is almost certainly a reference to Daniel 9.27. I'm not going to get deep into the weeds of Daniel this morning. Daniel's 70 weeks. I'll just say that what Jesus says here coincides with Daniel's 70th week, which he teaches about in in Daniel chapter 9. What is the abomination of desolation? The words themselves, uh, we'll talk about the words themselves. I'm open to multiple fulfillments of this kind of thing in history, but let's just think about the words themselves. An abomination is something that is horribly offensive to God. That's an abomination. Desolation is the state of being uninhabitable. So just the words themselves indicate that there is going to be something that is so horribly offensive to God that it renders the the area around the temple uninhabitable. In other words, it's, the, it's going to be the proverbial last straw. It's an offense, offense that's so bad, it's going to be the tripwire for this judgment that Jesus has, has predicted that is coming on Jerusalem. And the, the Greek grammar indicates that this abomination is a man standing or being where he should not be. And this fits very well with what extra-biblical sources cite as a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. From A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, there was growing tension between the Jews and the Romans. There there was an insurgent group of Jews called the Zealots who who had this attitude. They were were basically saying, look, we've had it with you Roman scumbags and we're not going to take it anymore. And so they led a series of of uprisings. But the problem with, with Zealots is that many of them were scumbags themselves. And so there was infighting among the, the zealots. And there were, there were three rival groups within the zealots all vying for, for, for position. And so there was unrest caused within the Jews, infighting going on. And then there's 
uprisings against the Jews, all of that led Rome to say, all right, you leave us no choice. We're going to have to bring the hammer down on you guys. And that hammer being brought down was represented by a military engagement, a siege that took place off and on between the years of of 66 AD and 70 AD. Now, what does this have to do with the abomination of desolation? Well, one of these insurgent factions was led by a man named John of Geshala. John of Geshala. He sought to set himself up as a sovereign king over the Jews. He was just a notorious tyrant. And he went into the temple and liquidated the the assets of the temple for his own personal enrichment and amusement. He and his thugs walked freely in and out of the Holy of Holies. They even committed murder right there in the temple itself. They eventually used... I mean, sorry, they essentially used the temple and its holy things for their private playhouse. Now, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he wrote of John of Geshala, quote, I believe that had the Romans delayed to punish these reprobates, and by these reprobates he means John of Geshala and his men, I believe that had the Romans delayed to punish these reprobates, either the earth would have opened up and swallowed the city, or it would have been swept away by a flood, or have tasted anew the thunderbolts of the land of Sodom. In, in other words, Josephus, who was a witness to all of these things, he's a first century Jewish historian, he saw all of this. In other words, Josephus was saying he couldn't imagine God not bringing biblical judgment. And, and all of those things are references to, to different judgment that God brought on people in the Old Testament. He can't imagine God not bringing that kind of judgment onto John of Geshala and his men had the Romans not done it for God or at the behest of God. Some believe that John of Geshala, some believe that his his worst act was making a mockery of the priesthood by installing a puppet high priest by the name of Phanias. Now, why was that a mockery? It was a mockery because Phanias was not only not of a priestly family, but Josephus records that this man literally did not even know what the high priesthood was. And John installed him as the high priest to do whatever John of Geshala told him to do. Now, there was a previous high priest named Ananus who wrote this. It would have been far better for me to have died before I had seen the house of God laden with such abominations. And it's unapproachable and hallowed places crowded with the feet of murderers. It's it's for this reason that that Josephus recognizes all of the above as the fulfillment of Daniel's abomination of desolation. Now, seeing that Jesus' wording here in Mark 13 indicates that the abomination refers to a person standing where he should not be, we we could understand any of these things to to be that particular man. It could be John of Geshala and his men using the temple as something like a murderous playboy mansion, or it could be Phanias, a non-priest, doesn't even know what the priesthood is, standing where the high priest is. He's standing where he shouldn't be. All of those things would qualify. All of them egregious abominations. 
Now, Jesus says, when you see this abomination, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why those who are in Judea? Why would he say that? Because that's where Jerusalem and the temple are. Flee to the mountains. What mountains? Likely Pella, which is, which is located in the foothills of the Transjordanian mountains. That would be the nearest place to flee. Now, continuing in verse 15. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. The point, of course, of, of, of these couple of verses here, few verses is, don't waste any time beating a trail out of there. You've got to move, move, move. And, and what is this about? about pregnant women and nursing women, praying that it doesn't happen in winter. Because those are all conditions that, that make it very hard to travel. You're, you're going to want to be able to move quickly. You've got to move quickly. Verse 19, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect, the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now let's remember what tribulation he's referring to. Remember that the context indicates that this is suffering surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And the scriptures actually give us an idea of what this might have looked like. If you're taking notes, you might write down Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. I encourage you to read that whole chapter. In, in your spare time today. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord tells Israel the blessings they can expect if they keep the covenant. And He, te- he warns them of, of the cursings that they can expect if they, if they break that covenant. Now, I want to read just a section of this just to give you a taste of the kind of judgment that the Lord is capable of bringing upon a people, the kind of judgment that He promised to bring on Israel for forsaking Him. This is just a small part of the chapter, but, 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 but listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young, it shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you and all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left so that He will not give to any of them any of the flesh of His children whom He is eating, because He has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender 
will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Now I would contend that that was most nearly fulfilled in the events surrounding the destruction of the first temple. But it is the kind of thing that you would expect surrounding the events of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. As you know, to lay siege is to cut off entrance to or exit from a city. And the object is to starve people out. And that's what's depicted in Deuteronomy 28. That's why Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee, run, get out of there. Because once the enemy lays siege, it's too late. If you get stuck in the city, you will experience horrible suffering. Now, did anything like that happen in 70 AD? Well, it certainly did. These things are recorded for us in antiquity. It wasn't long before the effects of famine took over the city. The Romans deliberately set the city's granaries and storehouses on fire. They polluted their water supply. And people sold their homes. They eventually sold their children for food. People got so hungry that they ate from public sewers. They, they ate cattle manure and pigeon droppings. There are, there are records of people eating leather shields, eating hay, eating clothing. Those who were suspected of hiding food were tortured to give it up. And some, out of desperation, left the city at night to hunt for food. Of course, they were captured by the Romans and crucified. And Josephus writes this, Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The lanes of the city were full of dead bodies. Indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. End quote. He he tells a story of, of one woman who killed her son, roasted his body, ate half of it, and hid the other half for later. That is directly out of Deuteronomy 28. When the walls were finally breached, the temple was set aflame with thousands inside. The Romans continued slaughtering the people until one source quotes that they grew weary of killing. Josephus describes that in this way. When the soldiers went in in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses where Jews had fled and burned every soul in them. They ran through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree, indeed, that the fire of many houses was quenched with these men's blood. Close to 100,000 Jewish survivors were sold into slavery. More than 1.1 million were killed in the siege of the city. That is the judgment that God brought on Jerusalem in 70 AD. Just as Jesus said it would happen. Now, we we might wonder, how, how are verses 14 through 20, how are they helpful to us? God has given this warning to the disciples that they might escape the judgment coming upon Jerusalem. 
that at the right time they might flee to the mountains. We're not in Jerusalem prior to 70 AD, but just as judgment was coming upon Jerusalem, so also judgment is coming upon this entire world. And just as Jesus told the disciples how to escape the judgment that coming upon Jerusalem, so also he tells us how to escape the final judgment. And we might say that this whole thing is a picture of the gospel itself. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All people deserve the wrath that God has predicted. But Jesus came as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He suffered and died in the place of sinners. All who repent and trust in Him, surrendering all that they are for all that He is, they are reconciled to God for all eternity. However, those who continue in their rejection of God will be judged. That is exactly what has happened in the historical case of Jerusalem. Christ came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. That is, they they did not repent and trust in Him. Therefore, God brought judgment upon them. And, and though that judgment came upon them, God preserved those who had faith in Christ. Here Jesus warned the disciples that they must flee to the mountains to escape the destruction of the city. How do we escape from the wrath to come? We flee to the safety that is Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wrath is coming. Flee to Christ in faith and you will be saved. All this brings us, of course, to to the major concern. According to the Lord, the Lord once again puts before the disciples this great turmoil is a breeding ground for spiritual deception. And so the Lord says, says to the disciples, and therefore Mark puts in front of us, don't be deceived. It's the, second, it's the second point on your notes. Don't be deceived. Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Remember, remember that this passage is structured as a chiasm. So, so the passage opened with a warning to avoid deception, and, and so now it closes with a warning to avoid deception. It must be significant. Earlier in the passage, the, the deception was, I am the Christ. And here it is, look, here's the Christ. Or look, there He is. There will be false Christs and false prophets even performing miracles aiming to specifically lead astray the elect. Don't believe them, Jesus says to the disciples. In those events surrounding the the destruction of the temple, there's going to be those trying to lead astray even you, disciples. Don't believe them when they say, here is Jesus or there He is. And Josephus even records in his annals, the activities of multiple false prophets doing this very thing at work during that period, leading many people astray. I think the obvious question to anyone would be, as Jesus says, don't don't believe it when they say, here's Jesus or there's Jesus. I think an obvious question is, well, Lord, how will we know when you have come? 
That's the implied question that Jesus answers in the following passage that we'll consider next time, Lord willing. Here's how you'll know it, it is me. That begins in verse 24. But that's for next time. Let's, let's consider contemporary significance of what Jesus has just said in verses 21 and 22. Just as Jesus warned the disciples about false Christs and prophets in the days prior to the judgment of the temple, so also the apostles. And they turn and repeatedly in the New Testament warn us of false teachers and, and deception in the entire church age. I invite you to turn with me over to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. You know, the New Testament was written during a tumultuous time. It anticipates that the entire church age will be tumultuous. And here is something that, that we all need to grasp. Tumultuous times are a breeding ground for deception. Why is that? It's because we want safety we can see. We want safety we can touch, that we can feel. We want safety that feels familiar to us. And so, as we read particularly Paul's epistles, we we find that much of his ministry was about going around correcting false doctrine that was finding its way into the church, offering to people safety that they can see, safety that they can feel, safety that feels familiar. He's calling them back to the gospel. Galatians is a prime example. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He's not beating around the bush. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, I encourage you also, as you sit down today, tomorrow, in the next few days, to read Deuteronomy 28, read also Galatians from beginning to end. What you will find is that there are teachers after these believers in Galatians essentially saying, look, here's another Christ. Here's another Christ. Here's a different way. And in this particular case, they're saying that Jesus is great, but you also have to be circumcised. That feels familiar, right? That feels better. It's something that you can do to secure your place with God. Doesn't that feel better? That safety you can feel. Salvation by works, it's familiar. It's man's natural bent. It's his natural bent to earn his way before God. But the true gospel is that freedom from sin unto life is bought by Christ alone apart from works. The insidious message of any false gospel or false Christ or false prophet or false teacher is that the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough. You need this. Add, add this thing that you can see. Add this thing that you do. Or replace this component with this other thing that's more familiar. 
Now, some false teachers seek to lure us with aberrant theological ideas. We could also say that the culture pressing in on us with its many worldviews, that the culture is a false teacher offering many false Christs. And let me warn you how, how the culture seeks to sell its false Christs. It first sells us on a false judgment. It is first going to sell us on a false judgment. The judgment that you have been told about in the Scriptures, that's not a thing. That is not a thing. Here's the real judgment. Here's, try this one on. Have you heard this one? The worst thing that could possibly happen is the collapse of the United States. Or the worst thing that could possibly happen is the loss of your rights. Now if you buy that false judgment, then what kind of Savior do you need? You need a false Christ in the form of a particular political persuasion or a a particular political position. Now listen very carefully to me. There is nothing wrong with landing on one side or another of, of the political aisle. There's nothing wrong with voting and being involved in political things. Nothing at all. But some cultural false teachers, even within the evangelical world, act as if political answers are our only hope and they're putting forth false saviors. Political answers are the only hope that is a false gospel. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Now what about this false judgment? The worst thing that could possibly happen is for your co-workers, family, friends, and acquaintances to think that you are intolerant regarding sexual norms. That is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Now, if I buy into that false judgment, what kind of Savior do I need? Here's the Savior. Abandon biblical standards for sexuality. Abandon that and adopt the sexual mores of the culture. That Savior will eliminate virtually all societal pressure and much of the current threat of persecution. It's a false gospel. Don't believe it. There could be any number of false judgments being sold to us, followed up by false saviors crying out, Look here! Here's a Savior! Here's a Savior! Here's the way to salvation. Just espouse this and everything will be okay. Jesus says to it all, Don't believe it. The judgment day is coming. It's the wrath of God coming upon those who have sinned against the Holy God. The only salvation is Me, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't listen to anything else. And Peter and John and and Mark and Paul and the author of Hebrews, they are all saying, don't believe it. And all of them in concert to us are saying, the worst possible thing that could happen is for you to be found outside of Christ on the last day. So, persevere in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Persevere in the faith. Don't stray to the right or to the left. Keep trusting Christ. Keep straight in your mind what is the worst possible thing. And that is abandoning the gospel and not believing in Jesus. Don't be deceived. 
final exhortation from the Lord in verse 23 to be on your guard. Be on your guard. The Lord says in verse 23, be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Now this verse wraps up that that whole first section that began in verse 5. You know, the key word in this, this entire chapter is be on guard or beware. We see it multiple times in the chapter. If you look back at verse 5, verse 5 could be translated, be on guard that no one leads you astray. Be on guard, is, it's the same word there. We, we find the word in verse 9. We're going to see it again in verse 33. It's here in 23. Beware. Be on guard. Keep your eyes open. The idea obviously is don't let any of this catch you off guard. I've told you everything beforehand so that you'll be prepared. So that you'll you'll be on your guard to not fall for the non-signs. So that you'll be on on guard not to be alarmed by the the coming persecution as as if this indicates that you should flee, as if something strange is happening to you. No persecution is part of the plan of, for spreading the gospel. I've told you these things beforehand so that you'll be on your guard for the deception that's coming so that you won't be led astray. Now consider, just you, consider, consider your own life this last week, two weeks, month. Consider how needful this is for the Lord to say to each of us, be on guard. I wonder how many of us, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us have maybe read the news Recently, had a, had a casual conversation about current events, read a blog, scrolled social media. And, and because of those things, we felt some pressure, some kind of pressure, political or economic, financial pressure, relational pressure, societal, whatever. We felt some kind of pressure, building anxiety. And we gave no thought at all to the fact that there are spiritual dimensions to that pressure. There are influences out there intentionally trying to sell hope in something other than Jesus Christ. And we didn't think at all that we ought to turn our eyes toward Jesus and say, I'm hoping in Christ. Everything's going to be okay because my eternity is secure. I'm hoping in Christ. How many of us gave no thought to the dire necessity to cling to Him, actively trust in Him? How many of us have given no thought to magnifying Christ as the world is trying to magnify trouble? We need to hear this word. And thank you, Jesus, for saying to us, be on your guard. I've told you beforehand. So let us be on our guard that we might worship Him alone that we might proclaim Him alone, that we might trust Him alone. As we close, just consider what a great kindness it was for the Lord to give this information to the disciples. This information regarding the destruction of the temple and what a great kindness of the Holy Spirit to move the apostles to to write these things giving similar warnings to us regarding the judgment of the world. It's, it's clear from earlier in the passage that as believers, we don't get a pass on suffering. We will be persecuted, and that persecution is a, is a tool for gospel proliferation. But it's also clear from this passage and others that God preserves His people from the coming wrath. And so we must, as we wait, simply cling to Christ, 
run to him in faith, and persevere in it. We're going to pray, and after we pray, we will observe a few minutes of of silence before the Lord. As we do so, I encourage you to just consider, ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to move you, indicate to you what He would have you to do with these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for its pertinence to us. We pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are certainly feeling pressure far more acute than we are. We ask that as they are feeling great pressure and and deep persecution, that you would grant them the grace to cling to Christ, to look to him, that they would not be deceived, Father, but that they would be faithful and that your gospel would go forward. As Father, we are feeling lesser pressure but still acute to us. Would you grant us to be faithful? Grant us to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Grant us to not be deceived but to be on our guard. Help us to keep our eyes open for the false judgments, false Christs being put in front of us all the time. Help us to cling to the Lord Jesus. We ask in His name. Amen.